This episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast, is intended for educational and informational purposes only. This episode of Cheat Codes was made possible by our sponsor, Agios Pharmaceuticals. What's up, Warriors? It's another episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast with me, Dr. Z. And me, Dr. C. Yo, Dr. Mike, how are you, man? I'm doing good, Dr. Z. I got my vaccine. Yeah, me too. Two times. Yeah. Yeah. Feeling pretty good about that. I'm feeling pretty good about that. My mom, she's 67 and she hasn't been able to get her vaccine yet. She lives in Canada. Um, so we're waiting until April 1st when she becomes eligible, but I'm counting down those days, man. Yeah, I'm still waiting for uh, my wife to get vaccinated. You know, we're talking about this vaccine a lot. And, and one of the cool things about the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine has been the way that this vaccine works. And you know, we spent some time talking to Dr. Rathor, who's uh, just a world-class expert in uh, COVID-19 and, and, and this vaccine. You know, one of the words that came up is mRNA. Yeah. And I, I figure, you know, there may be warriors out there that uh, could benefit from, from discussing what, what that actually is. I decided not to give you a puzzle for this episode. Yeah, this is uh, the first one. You made it easy on me. Yeah, so mRNA is um, messenger ribonucleic acid. In our body, we have you know building blocks called cells, and the cells themselves are made up of little pieces, which which are mostly proteins. And the proteins, we we have lots and lots of different kinds of proteins in our body. We have you know hemoglobin, albumin, collagen. You know, like thousands of different kinds of proteins that, that our body's built out of. And the instruction manual for how to make those proteins is our DNA. So there's this thing called the central dogma um, of molecular biology that you have your DNA and your DNA gets turned into sort of a blueprint. Like uh, you take the copy of the, the DNA for one protein and you make a messenger RNA, an mRNA. These little machines called ribosomes take that blueprint and print out a copy of the protein multiple copies of the protein. So that messenger RNA is, is really sort of like a, you know, a single page blueprint for one protein. And in, in the case of this vaccine, what they've done, th there's a part of the, the virus called the spike protein. Um, that's pretty unique to this virus. So they've taken the mRNA message that the virus would use to make copies of the spike protein and they've put it into a vaccine, into a, you know, a capsule that can be injected into you. And then that gets into your cells and your cells use that blueprint to make spike proteins. And then your body realizes those spike proteins are foreign and makes an immune response against it. And so then you have antibodies and T cells and your body's set up to kill off spike proteins. So if you get exposed to COVID, to the coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, your immune system is going to see the spike protein on it and attack it right away before it can infect you. Um, so that's the idea. So, so this mRNA is really that, that blueprint, messenger RNA that's used by our body. Every one of our cells has you know tons and tons of copies of mRNA making all the different proteins that we need. And this is, you know, a virus that's just making one more. Um, Super cool. A vaccine that's just making one more um, so that we can fight off the virus. It's super cool, man. I mean, I, I remember learning this stuff in, in biology class, and this is what sort of, I don't know, man, got me excited about science in general, just learning about the discovery of DNA and then figuring out that, you know, DNA becomes mRNA and then mRNA becomes these, these proteins, uh, it's fascinating stuff. It, it really is. And I mean, it's, it's amazing. You don't, it wasn't that long ago. They didn't know what the genetic material was and they discovered DNA and they, they thought maybe RNA was the genetic material. And, and, uh, and, you know, it wasn't until the, the really the, the, um, sixties and seventies that we started to figure out how all of this stuff works. And we're still learning things all the time. There you have it. Messenger RNA. Beautiful. And this is going to become increasingly important as we have conversations about gene therapy. For sure. For sure. Right. Understanding the mechanics of how genetic material comes together, unfolds, unravels, 
gets information from one place to another, turns off information in different places, turns on information in different places. This is the type of nuance that warriors are going to have to become really comfortable with as we enter this new era of um, therapies with curative intent. Yeah, I mean, I think like an example, we talk about, you know, these mutant BCL11s and hemoglobin switching. Well, what we mean is when we're babies, the gene for fetal hemoglobin for gamma globin gets lots of mRNA copies made and our cells are making those mRNAs into fetal hemoglobin. But then, you know, when we get to be adults, you have this BCL11 expressed, it goes into the DNA and switches the printing press around. So it stops copying the gamma globin and starts copying the beta globin. And you make lots of mRNA copies of the beta globin, which make beta globin proteins. And if you have the sickle mutation, that means sickle cells. So I think you're right, Dr. Z, um, you know, with these new technologies, really getting a little bit better understanding of fundamental biology will help us, you know, break down how those work and, and what that means. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Dr. C. That was very informative. There you have it, Warriors. Messenger RNA or mRNA. All right, Dr. C, man, you've been busy this episode. You've been doing a lot of a lot of the talking, I feel like. You've been carrying my, I feel like a bum a little bit. So thank you for carrying us. You know, that's how I usually feel. So I, you know, I always tell people I'm uh, Al Kaline to your uh, George Cow. You know, in, <laughs> in Detroit, the Tiger announcers, there was this, you know, eloquent guy with a uh, mild Georgia accent who did all the talking. And then there was this hall of fame baseball player who would just say like, you know, 10 words during the whole uh, broadcast. So I'm, I'm, I'm that guy. <laughs> oh man. I don't know what to say about that, but listen, I, I want to, I want to touch on something here. We, um, you know, obviously the vaccine has been rolling out and I, I got to say, man, uh, when I look through social media, there's a lot of excitement around sickle cell patients getting the vaccine. I mean, I, have, I see advocates and patients posting about it all the time. It's a badge of honor. They're like, I got my vaccine today, you know, and uh, I love that. I love that type of celebration. For sure. I, you know, I think so many people are uh, anxious to get that vaccine. Little, little relief, feel a little bit less uh, pressured by this whole uh, virus. It's a little ray of hope. It's definitely a little ray of hope. Now, you know, one of the things that we talk about a lot uh, is, you know, we, we know, we know about the safety of the vaccine. We know about the efficacy or how well the vaccine works. But I guess one question that comes up frequently is, is, is what does this actually all mean? You know, like, okay, I have these antibodies, I got this vaccine. What does this mean as far as my protection? Like, am I actually protected? How protected am I? And like, how much information do we have around that? And I figured I would kick that question to you because, you know, you're a pretty well-read person. And I feel like every other day you're telling me about something you read in, in some fancy medical journal. And I'm sure you have something for us here. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I think um, more than anything I've ever seen, there's been um, research into COVID-19. I mean, just from the very beginning, there were a lot of articles and, and now it's just snowballing. Um, and especially around these vaccines. And um, there are, you know, several vaccines and they did big studies. I mean, these were studies with, you know, 10, 20,000 people um, getting the vaccine and another 10, 20,000 people getting placebos to compare them to. So that, you know, they give us um, numbers around um, safety so they can look at, you know, what side effects are people having in the placebo group where they really, you know, shouldn't have side effects, but things happen. So you're going to have headaches, you're going to have diarrhea, even some bad things might happen. And is that different in, in, the, in the vaccine group? Um, so that's a great way to do it, these randomized controlled trials. And I think from those we saw, you know, 90 plus percent efficacy. So that means, you know, the number of people getting um, hospitalized with, with COVID or, or um, getting very sick with COVID in the placebo group was like, you know, 20 times higher than it was in the, in the 
um, vaccine group. But as with anything, you know, what happens in a clinical trial, you know, may be different than what happens in real life, where it's not things aren't being done the same way they're being done in the clinical trial. It's a bigger population. And that so real world probably, experience, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you, you know, I think that's so important. And for some medications, like, I, you know, we did our uh, best of ash, and we talked about some real world data with Oxbrita um, last week. And for so many of these things, it takes, you know, years for that kind of stuff to come out. But I came across this paper this week in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it was from Israel. And in Israel, there, there are four sort of big um, care organizations, and they cover the health care of huge chunks of the population. So one of these care organizations um, covers millions of people, and everything is captured in their data set because they're, they're covering everything. They get all of the hospital records, all of the medications and things. So they took advantage of that to study what's happening with uh, the COVID vaccine. And th they've done a great job with uh, COVID vaccination in Israel. So I think they have, um, if not the highest, among the highest rate of vaccination in, in the whole world. So in this study, what they were able to do was look at people who got vaccinated between December 20th, which was around when they started vaccinating people in Israel, and February 1st of 2021. So, I mean, this is really hot off the press data from like five weeks ago. And they did something very clever. So they found people who had gotten the vaccine and then they found people in the, in the medical records who were similar to them. So, um, you know, if there was a 45 year old man with diabetes who got the vaccine, they would try to find a 45 year old man from the same area um, with diabetes who didn't get the vaccine. So they tried to match people up and they had 596,618 vaccinated people. And they had an exactly equal number of unvaccinated matched controls. The, the groups were, were really in um, most ways very similar. Um, so they had a, an average age of 45 years and they um, ranged from 16 up to over 80 years. Um, and because the numbers are so big, you can really dig into those subgroups. You know, because it was Israel, the, the sort of ethnic racial distribution is um, mostly Jewish people and, and they, they called them general Jewish people or Orthodox Jewish people, but they also had some um, people of Arab descent. They had exactly 50% men, exactly 50% women. They also broke it down by um, risk factors, people who had things like asthma, heart disease, that obesity, that might be um, additional risk factors um, for having problems with COVID. And they, they counted them. So you could have zero risk factors, one, two, three, four um, risk factors. And those were similar between the group that got the vaccine and the, and the matched controls that they, that they got. They also looked at how many uh, flu shots these people had gotten in the past five years. So, you know, between zero and five flu shots in the last five years. And then they broke it down by um, some of these, you know, other diseases that the people had. So 2% of the people in the study had had cancer, 7% had chronic kidney disease. And I was, I was really excited to see sickle cell disease on that list. How many? They had 98 uh, people in the unvaccinated group had sickle cell disease and 109 in the vaccinated group. So interesting. So, you know, I mean, in a lot of things we do in sickle cell, a study with 200 patients in two different arms would be pretty, pretty good sized study for sickle cell. And, and then what they looked at in these two groups um, were a few things. They wanted to see how well the vaccine was working two to three weeks after you got it and how well it was working um, after you, a week after you got the second dose. And they, they looked at that in terms of how many people got infections of any kind, how many people got um, symptomatic infections, infections that required hospitalization, um, severe disease and death. As, as you might expect, the, the vaccine protected against all of those things. What was a little surprising is even, you know, 14 to 21 days after the first dose, you're not fully vaccinated, you haven't gotten your second dose yet. Um, already, there was quite a bit of protection. So for documented infection, you had um, a 46% reduction. Now, seven days after the second vaccine, you had a 92% reduction. 
Um, so it definitely was better, you know, to get the second vaccine um, and be a little further out. But already at two weeks after your first vaccine, you had a lot of protection. For symptomatic infections, it was 57% at two weeks um, and uh, 94% at uh, seven days after the second vaccine. Hospitalization was prevented 74% of the time with just the first two weeks, just the one dose. Um, and 87%. I mean, for, that's for fantastic. Severe disease, 62% after just two weeks, 92% after both. And for death, 72% of deaths prevented by, um, by the two weeks. Really effective prevention of bad outcomes. You know, can we take our masks off? Right. You know, this may be giving us some hope here. Um, when you get to be a week after your second vaccine, probably uh, greater than 90% reduction, even in asymptomatic infections. Um, and there have been other studies that have shown after vaccination, even when you get infected, you may have a lower viral load. So th this isn't proving that you can't spread it yet, um, but it's given us some inclination that we're, we're probably going to get there. Um, so, so I think a, a lot of great data out of this, you know, really amazing study. There are not very many studies that, you know, pop up three months into, uh, into something with 1.2 million people in two groups. I know you have to buy into it. Um, and, but, I, but I think this kind of data really helps. I mean, in this study, half of the patients were vaccinated. The other half weren't. So if you're in that hesitant group, I mean, you, you can see, and I, and I think this gets to the point. It's not that these vaccines are going to have no side effects. Certainly, they're, they're like everything else, they're going to have some side effects. But if you're reducing death by 95%, you know, minor side effects or rare, rare side effects um, are, you know, well worth that. You're better off. And, and as a population, if we can all get vaccinated, it was like Dr. Rathor's story with the smallpox, you know, we can really move past this. That's right. That's right. Uh, well, man, from your, from your mouth to God's ears, man. Let's hope for the best and uh, let's keep pushing forward. And now a word from our sponsor, Agios Pharmaceuticals. At Agios, they are passionately committed to transforming the lives of patients with genetically defined diseases, including sickle cell disease. They're proud of their innovative investigational therapies and are proud to announce that they will move forward with a singular focus on accelerating and expanding their genetically defined disease portfolio. This transformation provides Agios with the resources required to optimize the development of their promising investigational therapies and ultimately enables the greatest overall positive impact for people battling these conditions. The patients and families who are counting on Agios need extraordinary science, and they also need people with extraordinary hearts. At Agios, they have both. Their work to discover and deliver new medicines is personal. Dr. C, you know, we have had a, a really nice stretch of guests over the last several episodes, almost 30 episodes we've had uh, here on Cheat Codes. And we've been talking to sickle cell advocates. We've been talking to sickle cell physicians, hematologists, mostly. Today, we're stepping out of our, our zone here. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, today we've, we've invited uh, an expert uh, for an, an expert on something that is really important to the sickle cell disease community right now. So, so today we're going to be talking to Dr. Mubin Rathor, who's professor and associate chair of the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Florida. He's co-chair of the Infection Prevention and Control Committee at the Baptist Health System, and he's the hospital epidemiologist and chief of pediatric infectious disease and immunology at Wolfson Children's Hospital. There is a huge list of accomplishments here that I can uh, expound on and, 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 and talk for a long time about Dr. Rathor, but I, I really want to just get his voice on now. I want to I I jump into this conversation with this expert, and, and our topic today is going to be talking about the COVID-19 vaccine. Welcome, 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 Dr. Rathor. We are um, so pleased to have you on. Well, thank you much. Uh, it's certainly a pleasure to be here to be talking about uh, such an important topic that has affected all of our lives. Nobody has been spared from this uh, uh, 
a pandemic, so I'm delighted to be here. I know you guys in pediatric ID have gotten the brunt of this. You got infection control and changing rules all the time and um, you know questions from everybody in the community about COVID-19 and vaccines. And so really, thanks for taking time out today to meet with us. My pleasure. So, you know, we, we, we take care, obviously, of sickle cell patients as pediatric hematologists. And we recently published our, uh, our data from a cohort of four major metropolitan areas, New York, Boston, Chicago, Detroit. And, um, you know, we found a mortality rate in, uh, I should say, a case fatality rate in sickle cell patients to be like almost 11% in that cohort which of course is, is particularly high. Um, so, so when we talk about COVID-19 and sickle cell disease patients, we, we talk about it very cautiously. Our patients are appropriately very worried about COVID-19, but we get a lot of questions about the COVID-19 vaccine. And before we dive into that, Dr. Rothor, I want to sort of uh, get a glimpse from you about your involvement in discussions around COVID-19 vaccine, research around COVID-19 vaccine, things like this. Uh, how, how intimately have you been involved with the unveiling, unrolling of this vaccine? Yeah, so, you know, as Dr. C mentioned, uh, we in pediatric infectious disease and infectious disease world in general have been very engaged with all aspects of this pandemic. And, uh, you know, it's been a year, uh, you know, since uh, that's all it seems like we are doing. And, um, more recently, it's about the vaccine. Uh, and, and we are so delighted that there is some, uh, finally some huge lights at the end of this proverbial tunnel that we can actually hope for a back to normal life. So the <clears throat> vaccines, you know, we, I'm, I, we are part of the COVID vaccine prevention network. Uh, we, are, we are participating in trials for the vaccine in the pediatric trials also now. Um, and so I think we are uh, engaged in uh, that uh, aspect of uh, vaccine, but also I'm very engaged in my community for community education of the, not only the medical community, which I've given lots of uh, lectures and grand rounds, but also in the general population where I'm out there in the town hall meetings, uh, in uh, meetings of uh, uh, special interest groups, if you will, uh, faith leaders, um, uh, um, uh, minority group, biopark groups, all sorts of various groups. My special interest and focus has been trying to get to the uh, underserved community, peoples of color. Uh, you know, I, I, my, my daytime job is uh, to run the HIV program for University of Florida. So I'm, I'm very engaged in the community. And I, I think uh, we are still working at it. Our job is not done on that aspect of it. And also try to talk to many of the folks who are vaccine hesitant. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and and that's interesting that you bring that up. I mean, of course, when we talk about racial health disparities, um, there's, a, there's a lot of parallels that you can draw from HIV patients to sickle cell patients. I mean, these are patients that have been largely ignored and um, suffer from a tremendous biopsychosocial burden of disease and um, and stigma. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's not just that there's inequities and disparities in healthcare. I mean, that's been going on forever that I remember. And uh, I think this this pandemic has just uh, uh, shown this ugly head of this disparities and inequities in a much worse manner than ever before. But I think we have a responsibility to make sure that, you know, for all the inequities and disparities, but especially uh, for when it comes to this pandemic vaccine, we need to get the vaccine to the populations that are most at risk. And your sickle cell patients uh, are part of that population, which is at high risk. We know that they have a higher risk for infection, higher risk of uh, severe illness, high risk of hospitalization, you know, high risk of MISC disease, if you will. So, you know, these are patients who we have a responsibility towards to make sure we do everything to educate and to make sure that they have easy, and I think that's the critical thing, you know, just opening up a vaccine clinic is not going to work. We want to make sure it's easy access to that. So should we, should we jump into some of the myths that maybe keep our patients from getting vaccines? Sure, I think that's a, that's a, that's a perfect segue into that. All right, so how about um, people say, this vaccine's not safe, they rushed it. It was developed and, and tested yeah. too quickly. 
So it's, it's interesting, you know, uh, I always tell people there's no such thing as guaranteed 100% safety, you know. Uh, you get into your car and drive to work, there's no guarantee well, some crazy guy is not going to hit you from the back, the front, or the side. You take that risk, okay? But you made it, uh, things safer. So the same way we have done with the pandemic, we have made it safer with the facial covering and the masks and uh, social distancing and uh, uh, smart isolation. Now we have this vaccine. I think what the vaccine has been studied in an appropriate manner as any other vaccine study should be done. Uh, because of uh, the urgency and because of availability of resources and the backing of the United States government, if you will, we were able to hasten that process, not compromising on safety. Those are two totally different things. You can have a vaccine study done for five years and the safety measures may not be as good. So we have not compromised on safety issues. The, the, the studies have been hastened. There's more resources put into those studies and we have gotten the information we need. Now, I think we have to be honest that we don't have the long-term data. What we have is, and, and the data is accumulating, right? When the vaccine was initially improved, we only had three or four months of data worth of, for safety. Now we are six months, gonna be seven months. Every day that passes, we have millions and millions of doses being given and we have more and more safety data. So I think there is certainly uh, should be some level of comfort that this vaccine is safe, certainly safer than when you get the wild type infection, which can you know put you in the hospital, you can get into the ICU, get intubated and die from it. So I think that's the difference, I think, when, with the vaccine and the wild type. The virus is much more dangerous than the vaccine would ever be. Yeah, I, I think that's such an important point because we, we always talk, even with you know, medicines we commonly use, nothing's without risk, um, but you weigh that risk and benefit. And the benefit of this is you know, it may prevent you from getting a really serious COVID-19 infection, and we know that can be bad. And this was studied in tens of thousands of people in randomized trials and now post-marketing in millions of people. In general, I, I'm not very sophisticated about this, but in general, side effects from vaccines are usually in the short term. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, Dr. C, you have hit on something that's extremely important. That's managing expectations. I think we need to tell people that any vaccine has local immediate side effects, if you will, first 24 to 48 hours. I think that's the part we need to, you know, you're pediatricians, you remember when one of the, vac the vaccines came, uh, which was a multivalent vaccine and, and was given to infants and many of those infants got fever and we knew that they were going to get fever, but uh, when a two month old gets fever, they were rushed to the emergency department because we did not do as good a job as managing expectation and telling the families, you know, expect this after the vaccine. Same way, I think with any vaccine, you're going to have reactogenicity or the local uh, or, or, the, or even maybe systemic uh, short-term uh, self-limited impact. You, you're after all putting a protein in your body. And so the body is going to, that's the whole idea. You want the body to react. So I think, you know, I, I got my shingles vaccine. I can tell you uh, it was much worse than when I got my uh, coronavirus vaccine, the local side effects. And it's a spectrum. Most people will have nothing. Some people will have just a swelling where the injection was given, some uh, tenderness, uh, you know, some maybe redness, some would have fever. We know that uh, there's a risk of, or the, of uh, side effects or reactogenicity effects is much higher after the second dose than the first dose, that's to be expected. So I think expect that. I mean, I got my shot on uh, 10 o'clock on Friday, both of them, because, uh, and then in the evening and the afternoon, I was sort of feeling like something, I'm coming down with something and didn't have a good appetite. Next morning I was fine. You know, my, my family, my, they got the first shot, nothing happened. After the second shot, they had pain, they had low grade fever, they had to take some NSAIDs for that. Uh, but next day they were fine also. So, you know, but we were expecting that, we were ready for it. So I think that's extremely important that we manage those expectations with our patients and families. What if, what if a patient says, I already had COVID-19, I recovered. I don't think I need to get the COVID vaccine. Yeah, that's a very important question. I think, uh, as you know, with uh, several other infections, even if you like pertussis, even if you get whooping cough, you still need the vaccine. So it's not like if you get the infection, you don't need the vaccine. Now you can probably defer the vaccine 
um, for about uh, 90 days because we know the risk of getting another infection in the first 90 days after the infection uh, is extremely rare. There's some even some recent data with, uh, from Europe which suggests that the risk is extremely low after the, uh, in the first 90 days and maybe some data that in the first six months. So you can defer the vaccine for that time, but you don't have to. I think that's another important part. Now, you certainly don't want to take the vaccine when you have the acute COVID infection, which is true for all of it. If you have an acute infection and something else, you don't want the vaccine. So I think you, you, you can defer it. I tell people don't defer it. Once you're fine, everything is okay. Just get the vaccine. There is no downside to that, no harm to that. So I think it's something that we need to do. I think the other part that I also, I'm not sure, I'm sure you get asked that also is, can the vaccine give me COVID-19? And the answer is an emphatic no. The vaccine cannot. It's a protein. It's not a living thing, you know, so it cannot give you the infection. So I think that's certainly something we need to be very clear. Now, you hear stories, right, that somebody got the vaccine the next day or two days later, they had COVID-19. Now, that's possible because it would probably the virus was already in their body and it was taking its time as often happens. They're incubating, as we say, before it causes symptoms. And so that vaccine did not cause that infection. Vaccine cannot cause that infection. So that's another myth that I hear, unfortunately, more than I would like to say. Yeah, and along the same lines, one of the things that I have patients ask me about is, you know, this the mRNA idea of this, right? So wow, they're putting like, they're messing around with my genes. They're messing yeah. around with my genes is what patients are hearing. Yeah, so I, I, I to try to tell my patients and not just my patients, you know, some of the doctors and the family, healthcare workers, the family members, the, your gene is in the middle of your cell, what I call, what is called the nucleus and the RNA is outside. So it never even gets to the nucleus, but even more than that, think of it in this way. Think of the messenger RNA as your USB drive. Okay, you, you, you and, and your computer uh, is your body. You put the USB drive in there, right? The hard drive is the cell. You put the USB drive, it runs an application, you do your job, you pull the USB drive and it's gone. There's nothing else left there. Whatever was on USB drive is no more on your computer. Now, same way when you give the uh, vaccine. I love that, I love that analogy. Yeah. When you give the vaccine, what does it do? It takes over the control of what the what I was taught in medical school, the factory where proteins are made, the ribosomes. It goes in there, it tells the messenger RNA, the RNA in there, which produces proteins. Hey, buddy, you need to produce proteins that I want you to produce. And these are the proteins that are going to protect my the, the, the host from getting the infection. It does that, and then it's gone. The outside cholesterol uh, hull of this vaccine, if you will, it, it is like cholesterol. So it sort of, it, it metabolizes the body and it's gone. By the way, it's the, pro, it's the cholesterol part, the nanoparticles, we believe that's what gives you the reactogenicity. It's not even the messenger RNA. So coming back to your question, the messenger RNA goes into the ribosome, which is not anywhere close to your gene, your DNA, does its job, it's gone and you're protected, voila. So, so it doesn't make a microchip for Bill Gates. <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing, but because, you know, it, that, you know, that is something people are thinking about, that there's a microchip that's going in your body. And, you, you know, it's not, you know, people are saying they're going to track us there. You know, if you have a micro, if you have a cell phone, they're already know where you are. So <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That is very true. Um, I've heard other people say, you know, this could make you infertile or it could make your children infertile, or is there any evidence about uh, COVID-19 affecting fertility? No, I don't think so. I think we have heard that with polio virus vaccine, we've heard of other vaccines and, uh, you know, in, uh, we used to hear it from parts of the world with little education and it's sort of really uh, disheartening to say hear this from educated people. Uh, I think there is no way that this vaccine can do that. It cannot make you, it can't make you infertile or fertile for that matter. You know, as I said, once you once the vaccine does its job, it's gone. It's no more even in your body. So I think we are hearing all of these things. Also, uh, you know that it, the the virus, the vaccine does not go through breast milk either. So women can continue to breastfeed. I should mention here this for pregnant women, in the studies, the pregnant women were excluded, 
but there were some women who got pregnant, very few, while they were on the study, as happens in all studies. And they, so far we know they were fine, but there have been thousands of women now who are pregnant have been given the vaccine. And so far, the best of my knowledge, there are no side effects to the, uh, the, to, the, the, to the fetus or the pregnancy. So I think at this point in time, we can say that the vaccine is safe and it's, and obviously it's effective. You know, going back is you're talking about, you know, hurrying this process. You know, vaccines are one of those products that the, has a higher benchmark for safety than any other product was this we are giving to healthy people. That has always been the case. You know, we have uh, enrolled 30, 30, thousands of people, 30, 40,000 people in this uh, studies that led to the registration. Most other antibiotic studies and other drug studies do not have that many people. And so we, the, the burden of proof is much higher uh, with the vaccine. It's always been like that. And as it should be, because again, we are giving something to healthy people. What, do, what about for people who have allergies, like to eggs, or are, are there people who shouldn't get the vaccine? Yeah, so the egg allergies, I think the AAAI has come up with this recommendation, of the, you know, if you have a history of anaphylactic shock with products, I think you have to really consult with the, your, your allergist, and be, that's a higher degree of care. But if you have allergies, there's really no reason that, you, unless you have allergy to the vaccine or the products in the vaccine, uh, there's uh, no reason that you can't get the vaccine. I think, you know, you know, anything can cause a reaction, even, you know, acetaminophen, you take, can have an allergic reaction, you know, that can happen with any product. So I, I think, but in general, this is not something that is uh, any more allergenic than uh, any of the other products. And she said, the other thing I think is this issue about syncope, you know, unfortunate, unfortunate issue of when there was this woman, uh, well, this uh, nurse who collapsed and she had history of syncopal attacks. We know, this is also not new. People forget, we know that after HPV vaccine, you can have syncopal attacks. And the recommendation is after getting HPV vaccine, you should wait in the doctor's office, you shouldn't go out, go. We know that's happened. So those things are nothing new. There has been no deaths because of syncopal attacks or any of those things. How about um, if I get my COVID vaccine, I can take my mask off? Yeah, so I think that's also one of those myths. Uh, what we know from the studies, and I think we have to go by science, what we know, what science tells us, what evidence tells us. What we know is that uh, the COVID vaccines that are currently in use prevent serious illness, prevent hospitalization, prevent going to the ICU, prevents you from getting intubated and prevents you from dying. We don't know if they prevent infection. Now that doesn't mean they don't. All we know is we have not studied that. Those studies are ongoing and we'll have that information. And that concept of infection and disease is important. You can get an infection without disease. You know, people get TB infection, they don't have disease. Okay, so in this case also, so you can, so if you can get infection, that means you can transmit it to somebody else. That is why you have to continue to wear, wear masks because you need to protect others. You need to protect your family, your loved ones, your colleagues, your patients, your community. You need to do all of those things. And, and that, that I would say that's for now, right? So if we get right. to herd immunity and the rates of infection go down a lot, or we find out that the vaccines are really good at preventing even asymptomatic infections and spread that might change. And that doesn't mean we were wrong. It's just new science. You have hit on a couple of things. Herd immunity, because if enough people are protected, they can get the infection. So if they can get the infection, they can transmit the infection. Okay. Uh, what, what we don't know so far is if this vaccine, uh, and, and as I said, those studies are going and it is my, uh, speculation, my, it is my opinion that we will find that these vaccines prevent uh, the uh, uh, transmission of infection also. We don't know that now, and, and that's, the, that's the point. But as you said, science will show that in the future that that is possible. That's great. Do you have any more myths we need to bust today, Dr. Z? Yeah, I mean, I, I I guess I want it. I guess less less about myths, but more about I mean, just in general with sickle cell disease, we know that we know the effect of advanced and so advanced vaccination in sickle cell disease as it relates to pneumococcus and meningococcus and what that's done to survival in the pediatric population. So you know, this is a population of folks that 
that knows well what the benefits of vaccination can be. And, and, and to me, it just breaks my heart when, um, when we have people who are just, just sure that this is a non-scientific, manipulating way of, of altering the biology of human beings. I guess when you're talking, this is, this is less of a myth and more of just getting an idea of what it looks like to be a patient in your exam room. When you're talking to a parent about COVID-19 vaccination, how, how does that conversation look? What points do you hit on? Um, and and what, do you, what do you think resonates most with patients and, and, and parents who, who are vaccine hesitant? Yeah, so my approach is a very, with my patients, my start on that is a very non-scientific approach, if you will. I, first of all, I go in there with a lot of excitement. Not, not with COVID vaccine, because obviously we're not giving it there right now, but uh, with other vaccines. I go with a lot of excitement. I said, now today is the day your child needs this vaccine. I'm so glad you are here. Your child needs this vaccine. This is going to protect your child. And you're going to go see him, graduate high school, go to college. This is so wonderful. I'm glad you're taking this step. Uh, before they are even going to tell me, you know, and then I will open up for questions they may have about it. And then I will tell them, you know, I, I if it's a vaccine that I've taken, that I've taken it. If it's a vaccine I've given to my kids, I've given to my kids. And I tell them, I said, listen, I love your kids. I love you, but I don't love either of you more than I love my kids. And if I'm willing to give it to them, if it was not safe, I would never do that all for myself. So I think that's a part of the conversation in a sort of the non-scientific way. And of course, I'm the willingness to answer their questions. You know, there are people who are going to take the vaccine without question. And there are people who are not going to take a vaccine regardless of what you do. It's the middle group that we need to work. And most of them are looking, you know, for pediatricians or other physicians. We are the most trusted uh, group. Uh, when it, many, many, many uh, surveys and research has shown that, that patients listen to their physicians. Uh, and if, but if there's, there are always patients who have made up their mind. And I tell you, in my own experience, changing their mind is really difficult. Those who have, because every time you give them more evidence, you will get uh, <laughs> evidence saying that, no, this is, this is what I know. This is what I right. That's okay. There are a certain number of patient, families who are going to be hesitant and would not want the vaccine. Um, so I think that that's important to, uh, but I think we need to be open to discussion with uh, our families and our children. I mean, our children, we have, we have a situation where children want the vaccine, regardless of what the parents, especially the adolescent, you know, HPV vaccine is a classic example. But Dr. Z, you mentioned something that I think I want, I was, I'm going to make sure that, you know, the ch changes it has made in the life of children. I think both of you are too young to remember how many age flu case of H flu meningitis we used to have on the floor you know this was something common now we don't even see that I mean we uh, the last time I saw a case of H flu meningitis was December of 2016 and January of 2017 two, two kids whose, whose families had decided not to vaccinate them and we don't see that infection thank God anymore uh, so I think uh, that's another thing that, uh, that that we need to be reminded of now also I think we also have to be honest with the sickle cell patients that you deal with mostly and HIV patients I deal with. We don't have a lot of data in that, those groups of patients. Now, what we don't have is the safety data, but there's no reason to believe it would be any less safe, right? A lot right. of these patients were excluded. There's no reason to believe it any less safe. That's one thing. And we should be very honest to saying, even after you get the, we don't know how protective it is going to be with you. Now, there was a study just recently published on solid organ transplant patients from Pittsburgh. I think almost 500 patients. Uh, after one dose, only 17% had uh, immune response, uh, adequate immune response. Now, so that, so we need to study. I think it's our responsibility as advocates for children that in special groups of uh, patients, we study these vaccines in them, including coronavirus vaccine. Uh, so maybe we need a higher dose of, in the vaccine. Maybe we need more dose. I mean, whatever we need, but that has to be done. So I think, uh, you know, that part, because they will ask you, has this vaccine been studied in HIV patient or sickle cell patient? And you should be honest and say, there were some HIV patients, by the way, in the studies that I know of. I'm not, I don't believe there were sickle cell patients in those studies. So, but I think we, we have to be honest with them in saying, but we don't believe that it is going to be any less safe. It may not be as immunogenic 
it may not be as effective. So I think that's something we need to always be keep in mind. And be, again, be very honest with your patients. I think also, Dr. I'm sorry, Dr. C, you, you had mentioned about herd immunity. And I think we, in order to get to herd immunity, we have to immunize children. So that's why these vaccine studies in children are so important. Many people believe it's 70, 75 to 85% of the population has to be immunized before we're going to reach herd immunity. I personally believe it's going to be 90 to 95% before we're going to reach the, the herd immunity uh, uh, status. And then I think it would be, uh, again, continue to immunizing. You know, whether we need the vaccine every year, we don't know. We'll find that out. Uh, I think all those things have to be uh, always kept in mind. How about these new new variant strains, um, the one from South Africa or the UK um, that seem to be maybe spreading faster? Um, do we have any evidence about the vaccine in those? Right, right. So we don't have a huge amount of data on that, but the, what the current data is suggesting that the vaccine is also still efficacious, maybe not as much, but the efficacy is still there. Uh, so I think, you know, we still, we need, one of the ways, one of the ways to stop developing mutants is people become immune to the disease, to the infection. For the virus to mutate, it needs to replicate. For it to replicate, it needs susceptible people where it can replicate. So I think our focus needs to be on trying to uh, get everybody immunized so we don't give the virus the opportunity uh, to replicate and mutate. But that concern that you have raised is a concern. There are studies going on to look, looking at those variants, especially the UK variant. Uh, there are some suggestions that some of the vaccines may not be as effective. I think there was a study that AstraZeneca may not be as effective against the South African strain. And I think they may even have stopped doing using the vaccine in some parts of the world. But again, uh, the vaccine may not be as effective, but it is, if it is effective, I think it's they're still beneficial as long as it is safe, which it is. The condition of human beings is as such that we're always looking for optimism, hope, a ray of sunshine, the, the silver lining. When you look at the situation we're in right now and you think of what makes you optimistic today, what the silver lining is today, as a nationally renowned infectious disease expert, what is that for you? What, 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 what ray of hope are you holding on to today in 2021? That we have a vaccine. We have more than one vaccine. You know, if you look at it, any, we have never been able to conquer an infection without a vaccine. We have never reached herd immunity without a vaccine. And the fact that we have not one, not two, but three vaccines in the United States, and maybe we're going to have, and there's at least six other vaccines around the world, and we're going to have many more vaccines in the United States, I'm very hopeful. And I think this will, we will end this pandemic. We will get back to normal. And I'm very hopeful by, by, by the end of this year, during the holiday period, it'll be business as usual. Now, that will only happen. And this is what keeps me up at night. That's my nightmare as people don't get the vaccine. While I'm very hopeful that people will come around. There are a lot of people who are probably just waiting to see you know, what happens as more and more people get, and they will get the vaccine. I actually know of people who said, oh, no, no, you know, we've got 20 million, 100 million doses of the vaccines given, so we can now get, we feel like it's, so that, that's okay. I mean, our goal now should be, anybody who wants the vaccine should get it. And then we can always worry about the vaccine hesitancy at, at, at an appropriate time. Are there things that we can do to make the vaccine work better or even to make our immune system work better in the absence of the vaccine? Um, against COVID? Well, I think it's uh, nothing more than we didn't know before the pandemic, you know, good diet, good nutrition, and adequate sleep, rest, uh, you know, avoid sick, you know, you know, thick conditions where there may be a risk for infection. And I think the, the recommendations, you know, good hand washing, uh, wearing facial covering a mask, uh, social distancing, uh, smart isolation, don't go into uh, crowded places. I mean, all those things will help your body stay protected until you get the vaccine. Uh, and, and then hopefully by the time everybody gets the vac vaccine, uh, you know, our immune system would be, you know, would be able to protect us. Amazing, amazing. Um, you know, this has been super informative and, and I feel so proud and so lucky that we 
we've developed a relationship where I could reach out to you and invite you to this podcast. Thank you so much for sharing this expertise with us and with the sickle cell disease patients today. Allow me to just say one last thing, if you will, you know. You, you, we are in no rush. I am just, uh, you, you can talk all no, night, Dr. I, 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 You know, I have, I, I was talking to medical students and I showed them my two scars on my left arm. One is for BCG vaccine and one is for uh, a smallpox vaccine. And uh, there's this cute cartoon I saw where a young boy is asking his, his mother, mama, what is, what are those scars on your arms? And uh, he, mom says that well, that's for the smallpox vaccine. And the kid asks, why, why don't I have that? Uh, he said, because we took the vaccine, so you are protected. Hopefully we'll be able to tell our grandchildren and children that we took the vaccine, so you are protected and you don't have to worry about it. So I think this is something that is so, so important. Um, and I think, you know, we need to continue to be strong advocates for everybody to get vaccinated. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for sharing those experiences with us, Dr. Rathor. We um, appreciate everything you're doing for, um, you know, not only the patients you're taking care of in Florida, but nationally um, and, and, and the voice you've been within the scope of pediatrics. We, we really appreciate all the effort and hard work you've put into this. Thank you, guys. I appreciate your time. Thank you to our supporting partner, Agios, for bringing us this segment, Agios, where science meets heart. All right, Warriors, there's another episode of Cheat Codes, the Sickle Cell Podcast coming to a close. Man, we um, we talked a lot about COVID-19 today, which is um, seems to be a topic that we can't escape, unfortunately. Uh, you know, hopefully... Uh... It'll be in the rearview mirror soon, but I was glad to uh, have you know a great guest on to discuss um, myths around COVID nineteen and and why this is really going to be a game change. Um, hopefully, we went through some good data to to support that as well. I've got to say, man, I like the concept of bringing in non hematologist physicians. I mean, we've had pulmonologists on, we've had ER doctors on. Sometimes we forget about our infectious disease docs. I mean, uh, you know, these guys really do take care of our patients and sickle cell warriors do uh, from time to time end up seeing infectious disease doctors. Um, so I'm glad, I'm glad we were able to get one of the, one of the best on. And, um, you know, I'm glad we were able to get his perspective to be part of this record here. Definitely. And, you know, you know if we vaccinate well enough, we can prevent some of the visits to the ID doctors, but if we have to, yeah. them, they are a great group of people. There you go. There you go. All right, Warriors. Well, well, there you have it. Another episode of Cheat Codes. Uh, you know, keep living well with sickle cell and um, make sure you follow me at Dr. Z Sickle Cell and follow Dr. C at Imagineer. Uh, follow at Cheat Codes Pod on Instagram and we will catch you next time. Make sure you share this podcast with somebody who you think could learn about sickle cell disease, who could be a little bit more aware about sickle cell disease and make sure you subscribe and rate us, man. You know, th these guys, um, these guys at Bloodstream Media, they work really hard to make us sound better than we actually sound. And uh, your subscriptions and your ratings make a huge difference. So, so please go, go do that for us, okay? We will catch you all next time. Peace. <laughs>